Hello, I'm Dave, and welcome to Stand Up Tragedy Presents. These are some special episodes of the Stand Up Tragedy podcast where we bring to you some full-length shows, some hour-long shows, which we've recorded at some of our Stand Up Tragedy Presents events. All of the shows focus on complicated, seldom-talked-about issues around identity and around the world that we live in. There may be another Stand Up Tragedy Presents in two weeks. I don't know yet because we haven't yet recorded the night. But in two weeks, you may get to hear Jambi McGrath's A Last Dance with my father. And if you haven't done so already, I really recommend listening back to the first two episodes in this Stand Up Tragedy Presents season. Howl of the Banty by AJ McKenna and How to Be Fat by Matilda Gregory. Today's show is my show. It's What About the Men Mansplaining Masculinity. Bear with the sound quality for the first 10 minutes of the show. It gets better after that. What happened was we didn't have the right lead, so the first part of the show was recorded on the sound engineer's phone and then the rest of it was recorded properly because we had got the lead by then. You can find out more about the survey and the show at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. The show itself contains a content note within it, so pay attention to that and take it seriously. And it's my pleasure to finally introduce into the world this show which I spent a lot of my life working on and crafting. If you're somebody who books shows in a theatre or you are someone who books lectures at universities or colleges, please reach out to me. You can contact me at upstandingtragedy at gmail.com and I'd love to get this show out there to more people, particularly I think in educational establishments where you can reach people in their late teens and like early 20s who I think this show is really the most important for. So now let me present to you my past self recorded at the Dog Star in Brixton on International Men's Day 2015. All genders are very welcome in this space but this show is addressed to men, all men, myself included. Dear men, I'm 13 years old and it's late at night. My mum has been drinking gin. She's sitting at the end of the table crying. I ask her what's wrong and she begins to shout. I don't remember everything that she said, but I remember some of the things. She said that she hated herself. She said that nobody loved her. She wished she'd never had me. She wished she'd never had any of her children. She said that she hated men, that men were responsible for everything that had ever hurt her. She said that men were like a cancer. She said that men were to blame for everything bad in the world. She said that men couldn't help themselves. It was in their nature. And I said, what about me? And she replied by saying, even you. She told her son that he was evil, that he was wrong, that whatever he did, he could only end up hurting people, that he would only be able to cause the kind of pain to women that she was experiencing. And I believed her. It joined with lots of other things that I hated about myself and became part of a stick that I would beat myself with. My gender was poison. Everything was my fault. Researching this show, I put together a survey about being a man and a thousand men filled it in. The responses were varied and powerful and surprising and depressing and inspiring and moving. This show is my response. Now before I go on, I just want to signpost some things for you. I will be talking about violence, abuse, sexual assault, rape, systematic bullying, mental health issues and suicide. Please feel free to leave now if those are things that you don't want to hear about today. As someone who's been hurt by quite a few words, I'd rather that my words don't hurt anybody. One word for me is man. 
People have often told me to be a man. People have frequently suggested that I man up. I don't think I've ever been described as a real man, but I am real, and I am a man. Love it or hate it, and I've been known to hate it pretty strongly, it's my gender, and it's the one that I was born with, and the one that I feel fits with who I am, which is a privilege, as well as a deep pit of shame and self-loathing. During this show, I'm going to throw some words at you. Some may not be familiar, but hopefully by the end of this hour, they'll just be words, yours to use if they communicate something that you want to say. I won't explain all of them, but if you want more explanation, there'll be a further reading list available at the end. <laughs> How to mansplain mansplain. <laughs> It's a form of communication inflicted on women by men. It's men explaining things to women that they already know. Often it's men explaining what the experience of being a woman is like to a woman. Or men explaining a woman's area of expertise to a woman. Mansplaining isn't part of a conversation. It's an attempt to reframe it completely and to take charge of it. It's a thing that happens. I've seen it. I'm sure, at times, I've done it. It isn't limited to men. Explaining people's experiences to them is something that people do to each other all the time. People white-splain, people poor-splain, people explain physical and mental health issues. I've been explained to. While making this show, I've experienced quite a lot of mansplaining and also some woman-splaining. Now, some of you may be thinking, not men. <clears throat> if a teacher tells everyone to be quiet and you're a child who hasn't been making any noise, do you say, I wasn't talking? Or do you instead encourage your peers to stop making noise and ruining things for everyone? <laughs> Not all men is something that men say to women who are complaining that men as a group do something to them. It's an irritating and derailing thing to say. But it contains a truth within it because men are not a unified group of people. We are diverse. Some men are working class, some men are men of colour, some men are trans, some men are gay, some men are effeminate, some men are disabled. We are not all the same. Accepting the gender binary and the prisons that it creates for us is not the answer. Not all men are like anything, but men collectively are socialised to act in certain ways. These things are both true. The other response that women often receive when they try and talk about their experience is, what about the men? And that's really the question that I'm going to be asking for the rest of this show, I'm afraid. It's a question that's been asked by many people before, mostly by men and mostly on the internet. It's a question that's asked so frequently and generally to the wrong people and at the wrong times that it's become a meme a cliché, and a real obstacle to getting any kind of an answer. We won't be finding an answer today. I'm not even sure that there is an answer. I suspect it's a question based on a false premise. I mean, what even is a man? The word men is not a static thing. It's a concept that shifts about and means different things in different people's mouths. When I'm talking about men and masculinity today, I'll be primarily talking about gender, men as a socially constructed concept, masculinity as ideology. Gender and sex are intertwined. Sex is a biological concept and people often say that it's fixed or clear-cut. But biology is the name that we give to our evolving understanding of nature. A lot of modern biology, looking at humans on a chromosomal level, suggests that the binary way that we think about sex is wrong. There may be six or more sexes, but at the very least, there's lots of variety in how the three fully accepted sexes of man, woman and intersex experience the world. I hope that over the next hour, I don't reinforce gender or sex binaries, but I suspect in some ways I will. 
It takes time to change our understanding. It takes time to unpick. Simplification and generalisation are some of the things that words do. Now, standing here in a summer dress and a fedora, I risk my words not being taken seriously. But that's okay. I don't think we should always take things seriously, particularly me. But I'm not wearing this dress as a joke. I'm wearing it because when the summer comes and I see women wearing summer dresses, I always feel envious. Walking the streets in the baking hot sun in my jeans, I look at women and I wish that I could wear a dress. And every year I consider doing so, and every year I don't, because I'm afraid of the abuse and the stigma that a man wearing a summer dress will receive. I'm not wearing this fedora as a joke either. I like fedoras. <laughs> The fedora got its name when the actor Sarah Bernhardt wore one in the 1882 play Fedora. It was considered a stylish, gender-bending hat and became a popular woman's fashion. It was adopted as a symbol and style of the women's rights movement. Then, the men wanted in on the action, and it became a symbol of maleness worn by archetypes of masculinity from gangsters to Indiana Jones. When I started seeing jokes about sexist men wearing fedoras, I didn't know what a fedora was. I googled it, and there was the hat that I'd been wearing for a big chunk of my life. I did have a moment of wanting to try and reclaim the fedora, to argue not all men, but it's hard to justify going into battle on behalf of a hat. That's male privilege in action. To respond to the terrible behaviour of some men by saying, hey, I am not those men, let's talk about me and my hat, would be pretty, would be pretty inexcusable. Women have to deal with a lot worse things than hats. Men have to deal with a lot worse things than how. While writing this show, I got stuck on how to define masculinity. It isn't really something I feel able to define, more something that seems to define me. I wondered how other men would define masculinity, and I decided that the best way to find out was in the form of an anonymous survey. One of the starting points for both this show and that survey was this quote from The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity and Love by Bell Hooks. Patriarchy is the single most life-threatening social disease assaulting the male body and spirit in our nation. Yet most men do not use the word patriarchy in everyday life. Most men never think about patriarchy, what it means, how it is created and sustained. Sharing the survey and its responses via social media captured the interest and imagination of people of all genders and caused the survey to grow into something much more important than I'd anticipated. It's a thing in its own right, and it has a lot more applications than there's the research for this show. I've shared all of the responses on a website as an open source resource, and if you have any interest in reading and analysing a thousand anonymous men's thoughts on patriarchy, then that's the site for you. <laughs> The hashtag I'm using to describe the survey and the show on Twitter is Mansurvey, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, although the word I was supposed to say instead of describe them was discuss, which is very different, but I would like to hear your thoughts, nevertheless. I began the survey with this question. Does patriarchy exist? Most of the men who filled in the survey think it exists, although that doesn't mean that they consider it to be a bad thing. 15% don't believe in patriarchy. Now, I promise you this is the only audience participation moment in the show. And before I do it, I want to say it's okay not to know what patriarchy means. It's okay uh, to change your mind during the show. All of those things, we haven't defined it. All of those things are coming up. But with all of that in mind, uh, can you raise your hand if you believe that patriarchy exists? Wow, preaching completely to the converted. Absolutely what I hoped for this show. All right. So I think it exists too. <laughs> the next question is how would you define patriarchy? Quite a few of the men suggested that I looked in a dictionary. Some of them copy and pasted dictionary definitions into the survey. There seems to be a sense amongst some men that dictionaries are unbiased arbitrators of reality, that language and meaning isn't subjective. So, for them, let's start with a dictionary definition. 
patriarchy, noun, a form of social organization in which males hold most of the power, a society governed by such a system. I don't think definitions or words are static things. And the survey contains so many insightful, powerful and strange definitions of patriarchy from men. This is mine. Patriarchy is a system that is worse for genders who aren't men. This is one of the reasons that the question, what about the men, can be annoying. But whilst most systems of oppression only really flow one way, I don't think that's the case with patriarchy. My whiteness doesn't oppress me. My class doesn't oppress me. But patriarchy does and has and will continue to oppress me as long as it exists. Using the word patriarchy can alienate people. Being a man and claiming to be oppressed by gender can alienate people. The statement seems to deny that gender also privileges men. Now, I'm not claiming that being a man doesn't make lots of things materially much easier for me. Patriarchy is the word for the way that gender can be a hierarchy. It's the system that means that despite women being a higher percentage of the population, they're not equally represented or equally treated. It's a system that tries to fix all genders into rigid social and personal positions. Patriarchy is something that hurts all of us. And when we ask, what about the men? What about the terrible ways that men are treated and conditioned and damaged? The answer seems to me to be because patriarchy. And patriarchy is part of something bigger. It's one strand of kiriarchy, which is the collective noun for systems that oppress people. A herd of elephants, a flock of sheep a murder of crows, a kiriarchy of oppressions. Now, the next question is, how has patriarchy hurt you? And it's at this point in the show I have a sip of water because patriarchy can be quite dry on your throat. <laughs> I don't remember when I first met my stepdad, but... From when I was three years old, he was a part of the family. My early memories of him are positive. He was softly spoken and he gave very solid hugs that made you feel safe. When I was six, my half-sister was born and the year after that, my mum and my stepdad decided to get married. My mum always says that getting married switched something in my stepdad's head. Suddenly, being the main breadwinner became something that was important to him and he began to revert to the model that he'd seen growing up. My stepdad grew up in a working-class household in Belfast. His father had beaten the boys with a belt. It was a house where little boys were made of slugs and snails and puppy dogs' tails, and girls were made of sugar and spice and all things nice. His father had been the man of the house. At school, he was beaten with a cane. On the streets, he had to negotiate the police and the soldiers who would throw you in the cells for nothing. He was always close to explosions and violence. My stepdad was forged from patriarchy, and it hurt him repeatedly. The switch flicked when I was eight and we moved to Coventry. My mum remained the main breadwinner and my stepdad, who after years of working in a factory had retrained, started his first teaching job in a boys' school. The environment in the school was chaotic. The boys would throw chairs at the teachers. And when he finished work, he would return home and he would sit silently at the table reading the newspaper. My mum's job had longer hours than his. She would get home between six and seven and make dinner. He would sit and drink Guinness. She did all of the housework apart from the washing up. When the switch flicked, the way that he treated me changed. He stopped being a solid and comforting presence and started being someone I feared. He began treating me like I was made of slugs and snails. He would hit me occasionally, not very often, but it was a shock to me and a massive contrast both to the way that he'd been in the, in the past and to the way that my dad treated me. All my life, my mum had been prone to volatility, but when she was angry, her rage came from a hot place, from a place of out-of-control feelings. With my stepdad, it was controlled rage. It was cold. It was clinical. But you could tell that beneath it was something even worse, that if he lost control, 
you might not survive it. The house in Coventry had thin walls and the screaming arguments that happened at night between my mum and my stepdad were loud. One Christmas, I gave out the presents, making piles by each member of the family. I thought I'd finished, but my mum said, there's still one left. I found the last package behind the tree where it was hidden. It said Dave on it, so I ripped it open. My mum was staring at me with a horrified look on her face. I looked back down and I could see now that I'd misread the package and it said Dad. It was a present my mum had brought from my sister to her dad and I'd opened it. My mum started shouting at me, calling me spoiled and greedy. She screamed at me that I'd ruined Christmas and she stormed out of the room, slamming the door and stomping up the stairs. My stepdad grabbed my arm and pushed me back into the Christmas tree. You've made your mother cry, he said, before he hit me. One night, through the thin walls, I heard them arranging a pact. I heard my mum, who'd brought us up not to value marriage and to be aware of sexism and gender roles, promising that she would be a good wife, that she would not nag, that she would do all the housework and her day job and wouldn't complain, that she would be good and dutiful and loving and supportive, that she wouldn't shout, that she wouldn't hit him. And if she could manage it for a year, then they'd stay together. When I meet a woman who hates men, I wonder what men have done to her. When I was 13, my family moved to Cardiff and my stepdad didn't come with us. In Coventry, I'd been an outsider, but I wasn't in danger. School was navigated relatively easily and was one of the safe havens from the destruction that was happening at home. When I moved to Cardiff, my dad moved back in with us, which meant that although I now had more access to him, I could no longer go to his place to escape from my mum. The only safe place left was school. Coming into that school in the middle of year eight, I had a few things stacked against me. I was an English boy in Wales, and so I had an accent which marked me out as different. On top of that, I performed well academically. I had glasses, and I was acquiring an exciting range of acne across my face. I suddenly found myself within the category of SWAT geek nerd. And I think that the biggest thing that made me a target was that I was vulnerable. I was a mixed up ball of anxiety and I didn't feel safe in myself and in the world under patriarchy, vulnerability is seen as weakness. In an art class in my first term in my new school, a boy said that I looked like a Melvin. I reacted to this in a defensive way. Confounded by the absurdity of the statement, I became agitated and emotional. I didn't laugh it off, but I didn't respond with power and violence. The boy and the rest of the class enjoyed my reaction and continued to call me Melvin. The more they threw the word at me, the more upset I got. And in the end, the class was chanting Melvin at me and watching me flip out. The name stuck. I went viral. Soon everyone in the school was calling me Melvin. I would walk down the corridors to jeers of Melvin. Often I'd react, sometimes shouting, sometimes trying to appeal to reason, sometimes crying, sometimes running away. But that isn't sustainable through years of jeers. And as time went on, my reactions became fewer and fewer, and I internalised more and more of it. But as my reactions became less frequent, other techniques were used. New words were added to Melvin, Swat, Geek and Nerd. Bookworm, Four Eyes, Minga, Ugly, Disgusting, Pathetic, Fanny, Woman, Sissy, Gaylor, Gay, Homo, Queer, Runt, Masha, Pedo, Nonce, Tramp. And it didn't stop with words. Things were thrown at me. People spat at me. Walking down the corridor, I'd be punched in the back or kicked in the heels. Many did it absent-mindedly, like that's just something that you do to Melvins. A lot of the abuse that I received either positioned me as gay or like a woman. I didn't think there was anything wrong with being gay or a woman, but trying to explain that to my tormentors was the sort of response that made the name Melvin stick in the first place. Every time I lost my temper and shouted that I wasn't gay or a woman, I hated myself for acting as if it mattered. Girls shouted Melvin too. I was kicked and punched and spat on by girls. Girls called me ugly and disgusting. Girls laughed together in groups and pointed at me. One time a girl pinned me down while two boys kicked me repeatedly in the face, 
breaking my glasses. It wasn't just boys, and it wasn't just the straight boys. There was a boy who also had glasses and was also called a SWAT. I found him distasteful because he seemed weak. I felt like he was an actual SWAT, not like me who had been given the title unfairly. He always wanted to sit with me, but I wouldn't let him, partly because it made me more of a target, but partly because I thought that he was less than me. One day in a lesson, he sat next to me anyway, and halfway through the lesson, I began to mock him. The kids around me started joining in, and I felt this moment of weird acceptance, and I turned to him with a smirk on my face, and I looked him properly in the eyes, and I realised what I was doing. I didn't bully him again. One of the ways that I reinforced patriarchy while I was in school was by letting it into my own brain, allowing it to make me feel ugly, unmanly, whatever the fuck that means, undesirable, lesser. I mixed the feelings I received from being bullied with the feelings that I'd received from my home life and upgraded the stick that I would beat myself with to a mace. I started to wish that I didn't exist, that I could be erased. I just wanted everything to stop. The real problem was that both at school and at home, I gradually learned to be a coper. I wasn't able to admit or articulate even to myself for many years that I experienced regular cycles of anxiety and depression. I think it was a mix of the fear of looking vulnerable, a sense that I deserved to feel these things, and a sense that I was too privileged and too good a coper to be really experiencing them. It meant that for years, I thought that I couldn't use these labels. It's hard to see if one gender suffers from mental health issues more than others. More women are treated for depression than men, but it's less socially acceptable for men to admit that they experience anything that makes them look weak. More men have successful suicide attempts than women, but it seems that one reason for that is that we often choose more violent methods. Either way... I think patriarchy plays a factor in the mental health of all genders. And it certainly isn't just men who we push into being copers. Women are expected to cope in different ways. Both sets of adult gender models, the stoic worker and the caring mother, require people to submerge their own emotional needs for the sake of the family. My mother was a coper. Rage was the only part of my mental health that I was comfortable talking about in the past. Partly because it's coded as male and strong, so in some ways it was more socially acceptable to admit to, and partly because I hated myself and I hated men. By talking about having rage, I was able to show something ugly and unworthy of compassion within myself. Rage is something that I'm deeply ashamed of, but... It has mostly only hurt me. I've been a wall puncher. I've given myself a lot of bruises over the years. When I was 15, I got so angry that I smashed up my bedroom, ripping apart my childhood cuddly toys, smashing everything that was glass. My dad found me surrounded by broken things, holding parts of a torn-up dolphin and crying. He hugged me. The next day, I mended that dolphin with cotton and superglue, and I still sleep with him now. I threatened to kill myself publicly once. It was in an art class. We were using scalpels as part of the lesson and the kids around me started chanting Melvin. I picked up my scalpel and held it to my wrist and shouted at them that I would slip my wrist if they didn't shut up. And they responded by chanting, do it, repeatedly. I realized what a terrible move I'd made and I closed my eyes and tried to imagine that I wasn't there. That may have been a misjudged bluff, but there have been plenty of times when I've really considered stopping myself existing. By the time that the sixth form came, I was able to persuade people who were my friends to stop calling me Melvin. My friendships, theatre, music, writing and my father gave me things to live for and to escape into. There is not enough respect for tears and feelings in general. We're all told to keep them in. Talking about your pain is a radical act. Sharing these experiences help us to understand that we're not alone. 
Men are emotional, often too emotional or not emotionally literate enough to experience our emotions in ways that don't hurt others. But we're told not to show our emotions. It's only in the last five years that I've realised that I've spent my life hiding things from people. I didn't tell my dad or my friends about the way that my mum and my stepdad were treating me. I didn't tell my parents about much of my bullying experience. It's taken me years to start to be truly open and honest with myself and with others. By and large, men are oppressed less than women. We have more agency. We have fewer infringements on our bodily autonomy. We have more power to change our circumstances. And we have more voice. We get larger bites of the carrot. And it's our hands that hold the stick. When I came out of school and went to university, I still felt like someone who was oppressed. I still felt like I was low down in the hierarchy of society. But pretty much as soon as I left those school gates, all of my cis, straight, white, male privilege flowed right back to me without me knowing it. And it's taken me years to notice it, and seeing and understanding it will be a lifelong project. Okay, this is the next point where I have a sip of water. And when I do that, I also say, it's going to get lighter for a bit. For a bit. Kind of like relax off a little bit now. It's going to get a little bit more light. The next bit could even be described as funny. But don't get too used to it. When I was 11, I invented something amazing. I discovered something that nobody else in the whole world had ever known. I discovered it late at night, lying in bed. I found that my body could do this amazing, amazing thing. And I couldn't wait till the next day to tell everybody else about it. I gathered around a group of boys around the same age as me and I said to them, I've discovered this amazing thing. I call it simulated sex. And I described what I'd been doing, which was rubbing myself until I achieved orgasm. And they said, that's wanking. Everyone knows about that. Till I was eight, my father looked after me and my mum went out to work. My older half-sisters, who are old enough to have played aunt-like roles in my childhood, as well as my mum and my dad, were influenced by the feminist movements of the 60s and 70s. In my family, it's the women who both make the decisions and wield the financial clout. I was dressed in hand-me-downs from my niece, which meant that I was regularly sent to primary school wearing pink jeans. I didn't really conceive of the idea that boys and girls were significantly different. I had three sisters and I'd always played with boys and girls. At eight, things changed. And from then till I was around 15, all my friends were boys. I occasionally had girlfriends, but I didn't have girl friends. I was around nine years old when Karen Price dropped my rubber on the floor. And when I reached down to pick it up, she flashed me her vulva. When I was 10 or so, I told Rachel Barker, who I was going out with, that it wasn't right for us to continue to go out because I'd seen Karen's vulva, but I hadn't seen hers. And this resulted, yeah, fair enough, this resulted in us showing each other our genitals behind the back of her garden shed, although neither of us would have used the term vulva then. Although I wasn't aware of it, that was a really manipulative move. And looking back on it, it makes me shudder, as it obviously made some of you shudder. I wish I'd had better sex education, either from my school or from my parents. I learned all of the practicalities of sex, but two important areas were mostly left out. Understanding consent and articulating desire. And those, it seems to me, are the most important parts. And even in terms of the practicalities, there were gaps in my understanding as my invention of masturbation should demonstrate. <laughs> Instead of learning consent and desire, I managed to learn guilt. Despite being brought up in an entirely non-religious household, I came to understand my sexuality mostly through shame. I think that the shaming that we're taught to perpetuate makes all genders into weapons against each other. 
We slot into a horrible jigsaw puzzle that encourages us all to ignore and devalue consent. Our own and each other's. Men are seen as consenting all the time and as having nasty desires. And women are seen as lacking both the ability to desire and the ability to withhold consent. And when women do consent, they are shamed in a different way to men. Men are seen as disgusting animals, but that is presented as our natural state. Women who desire are seen as deviant. The best stuff that I learned about sex was from my mum, although since she doesn't have boundaries, it was still pretty confusing stuff. For example, she often told me that giving birth to her second child was the most sexual experience of her life. Which makes me feel pretty strange because I am her second child. As a teenager, I didn't know how to talk to girls about desire. I didn't know how to negotiate romance. To be honest, I'm not sure that I know now. If I'd had better sex education, I'd have known that the idea of virginity is a weird one. Sex isn't just when a penis goes into a vagina. There are many ways to have sex. And so I'd had sex before I officially lost my virginity. I was having sex at 15 when my girlfriend and I were messing around in my bed on and off for six months. During those six months, I did lots of things to her, which we both enjoyed. But she didn't get me off. I was always confused about why, and a few years later, when drunk at a nightclub, I asked her, and she said that she didn't know either. But the thing is, I didn't ask. I didn't know how to ask. We communicated mostly non-verbally about the sex that we didn't even know we were having. Again, I think this is down to the policing of heterosexuality. Women are supposed to have sex, but not to want it. Men are supposed to want sex all the time, but only in a manly way. If you don't fit that manly model, then you have to push your sexuality down. The best piece of sex education that my mum ever gave me was when I was five years old, and myself and another boy of the same age were playing doctors and nurses with his sister and examining each other. Everything was cool, And then suddenly it wasn't. We'd overstepped a boundary and she was crying. I went to find my mum and tell her what was happening and she came and she talked to us, explaining the importance of consent and communication. She didn't shame any of us. And I think because of that, the lesson definitely had some impact. This was a response that a man gave in my survey to the question, how have you hurt people in a way influenced by patriarchy. I rape my girlfriend because I did not know what rape was. In the first year of university, I found myself fooling around one night with a girl who lived in my corridor. I was into the fact that she was into me, but I wasn't into her. The next night, I went to her room to tell her that because she already had a boyfriend back home, we could never work. This seemed to me to be the best way of letting her down lightly that I could think of. She had, however, already dumped her boyfriend for me. And when she told me that, I felt trapped. I I didn't know how to tell her that I wasn't interested when she'd basically just altered her life to be with me. But... I just couldn't see us working, so I told her I was sorry, but I didn't think we were right for each other. She started crying, and I sat there on the other side of the room, feeling awkward. Her tears quickly turned to anger, and she started shouting at me. She had been drinking before I came, and so she wasn't holding back. The shouting alternated with pleading for me to change my mind. Eventually, she came over to where I was. She grabbed me and pulled me up so I was standing facing her. She was as tall as me and physically strong. She kissed me against my will. I told her no, but she carried on. I tried to push her away from me and she pushed me back against the wall. I didn't know what to do because I knew that the only way I could stop her would be to hurt her and I wasn't even sure that I was strong enough to push her away. She told me I wanted it. I told her I didn't and I was sorry. She pinned me and held me in place as she knelt in front of me. I told her no and tried to push her off me, but when she fought back, I stopped. I didn't want to hurt her. I felt guilty for causing her to break up with her boyfriend. I felt guilty for not finding her attractive, but fooling around with her anyway. She undid my trousers and despite my struggling and saying no, she started sucking my limp dick. I froze and my mind went to a distant place. 
It hurt. She was crying as she did it. Eventually, her actions caused me to get an erection, which she then said was proof that I wanted her. But I couldn't come, and the sexual assault went on for quite some time, with her getting angry and sad and horny. I couldn't see how it would end, so I told her that I wanted to get her off. And eventually, she stopped to allow me to go down on her. I didn't want to, but I wanted it all to stop. After she had come, she finally let me up. And I left her still crying in that room, and I crossed the hall to my own room in a state of shock. I didn't cry. I just felt full of guilt and shame. I didn't see it as rape or sexual assault at the time. I felt like I was the bad person, that I got what I deserved. Two years later, I realised that my experiences had been sexual assault. And since then, I've occasionally brought it up with friends, some of whom initially suggested that I must have wanted it, that I was exaggerating, that I must have enjoyed it. One of the reasons that I didn't see the experience as sexual assault was that it didn't affect me in the way that I imagined sexual assault would affect someone. The power dynamics are different if you're a man. And I felt like since I could have probably fought her off if I'd been prepared to seriously hurt her, I hadn't been completely helpless. But now I understand that the narrative that we give to survivors in the media is also part of the problem. That there are lots of ways that people respond to being raped or sexually assaulted. That not fighting back doesn't mean that you consented. That part of the reason that survivors of rape can find it hard is the expectations on them to react in an appropriate way, as well as the stigma and the judgment around it. I don't have enough fingers to count the amount of people who I know who are survivors, and that is just the people who have told me. Men don't talk to other men about rape, and we certainly don't talk about consent. Men I know will have raped people. Men you know will have raped people. Rapists aren't monsters, they are humans, and generally speaking, they are men. Why do more men rape? I think it is because of the power dynamics that we currently have and because we have a culture that is supportive of rape. Men are statistically much more likely to be raped by a man than a woman. When they are raped by a woman, they are less likely to see it as rape and so they are less likely to report it. If they do report it, they can only report it as sexual assault in this country as under our law, only men can commit rape. Our laws are patriarchal and they don't want to present men as weak. Rape, like other forms of violence, is a power issue. There are survivors of all genders and there are abusers of all genders. The culture around sex and gender confuses us about communication and consent. And I think within that, it is possible for people of all genders to cross boundaries without knowing it, to assume consent is there when it isn't. Talking about consent more and finding ways to articulate our desires will help us to get rid of these mistakes. A culture of blurred lines encourages and forgives abuse. Men need to talk to each other and call each other out when we perpetuate rape culture. We need to make it clear to our peers that it is not socially acceptable to rape, that there are more kinds of rape than the evil monster rape that the media tells us to be scared of, that we can be raped by men, that we can be raped by women, and that nice guys do rape. We need to talk about this stuff. We need to look back at our teenage years and our past and reevaluate our behaviours. Have we violated people's autonomy and consent? Have we endorsed and supported others to treat people like things? Looking back at my own behaviour, I have certainly violated boundaries. I have attempted Harrison Ford-style kisses. I have misread signals. I have manipulated and lied to persuade people to sleep with me. I am working to change my relationship to consent and to improve my ability to express desire honestly, trying to learn how to say what I want and how to listen to what others want. And judging from the man survey responses, I am not alone. Now, the next question is the question we're talking about at the moment. How have you hurt people in a way influenced by patriarchy? This is the least answered question. Many men skipped it altogether. Many men say they haven't or they think or they hope that they haven't. Some men say they are offended 
by the question. When men do answer it, they often say that they're sure they have, but they don't know how. They often talk about getting jobs unfairly or not doing enough of the domestic chores. But some men did respond by looking at the terrible things they have done, including violence, sexual assault and bullying. In a strange way, those are the men who give me hope. Like many of the men filling in the survey, I think I hurt people most as a teenager and in my early 20s. In my teens, I felt manipulated and wronged by girls who were my friends, but didn't want to be more than that. Why didn't they want me? I was a nice guy, wasn't I? It took me a while to see my behaviour for what it was. I responded to being rejected with pure male fragility. Rather than accepting that sometimes people are just not in the mood or not interested in me, I've taken it personally. I've cried, I've wallowed, I've guilted. I've turned sex into something that was all about me, about whether I was valued or desirable. When writing this show, I kept putting this section off. When I finally did write it, I kept rewriting it because I couldn't get it right. As someone prone to hating myself and my gender, it's been really hard to keep that out of it. Getting the balance right is difficult, though, because when I look for reasons and complications, then really, I'm just making excuses. How much of your behaviour comes from entitlement and how much comes from pain and insecurity is irrelevant, though. Actions are the things that affect people, not the reasons behind them. The ways I've hurt people through the influence of patriarchy, many of which I've referred to already and many of which I probably haven't noticed due to my privileges, are definitely things to try and pin down and learn from and make amends for where possible. But you have to try and forgive yourself too. I find forgiving myself one of the hardest things to do. Now the next question was how would you define masculinity? It was to get answers to this question that I originally created the man survey, and yet answers that I got were so diverse and conflicting and powerful and shocking that I really can't do them justice here. So if you want to find out more about what men said, not just about masculinity, but about patriarchy too, go to www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. So the next question is, does misandry exist? And this is a point where I get to have another sip of water before we tackle this thorny issue. In the survey, a lot of men don't know what misandry means, which I expected because I don't think it's that common a word. It means hatred of men. Quite a few of the men who knew what it meant said that it doesn't exist, at least not on a structural or systematic level. Three Christmases ago, I was talking to my mum about the things that she said, and she stood by her statements. Men are ultimately damaging and wrong. I asked her how she could think that as the mother of two boys, and she said, I don't mean you, I mean men. And I guess she meant patriarchy. But it reminded me of of what people say about misogynists. Don't they have sisters, daughters, mothers, female friends? How can they think this? And I think the answer many of them will give is, I don't mean them. A lot of feminists say misandry isn't a thing. But I think it is. I think people hate men and use that hate to do damage to men and boys. I think misandry is the other side of misogyny's coin and both reinforce patriarchy. Many people come to misandry from pretty brutalised places. If the experiences that you've had of men have been full of hate, why wouldn't you hate men? I'm surprised that more women don't hate men. My mother was violent to her children. Physical violence was rare but always possible. Emotional violence was frequent. I've worked with children and been on child protection courses and the first course that I went on was a revelation. When we went through examples of emotional abuse, I realised I'd experienced 75% of them. A lot of people suggest that misandry can't exist because of the power dynamics between men and women, but women have power over children. And men begin as boys. And boys are made of slugs and snails. And boys will be boys. I think hatred of men and male is within transphobia. 
Trans people, non-binary and agender people stand at the intersection of misandry and misogyny attacked by some for being too male and some for being too female as if either state were hateful and as if there are only two ways for humans to be. Trans people's experiences could help us unlock the prison of gender, but instead we police their cages with hate, and in the worst cases, violence. Patriarchy always means violence. We need to talk about violence against women. We need to talk about violence against LGBTQIA people. We need to talk about violence against children. We need to talk about the violence that men do to each other. We need to talk about the violence that women do. Men need to talk about these things. We need to deprogram our conditioning and break the cycles. It's understandable for people of all and no genders to be afraid of men. All genders are more likely to be murdered by men. Men are the main danger men face, both physically and emotionally. So we all have the same enemy, and it is men. Not all men, of course. Actually, the enemy is patriarchy. It hates men. It hates us so much that it says we shouldn't cry. It poisons our ability to interact with fellow humans by forcing us into hierarchies of power and status. It doesn't want us to see our children. Patriarchy makes men into its weapons. We are pushed into the army. We fill its prisons. We are used as tools of industry and we are discarded when those industries move on. Patriarchy doesn't just treat women like objects. Patriarchy treats all people like objects except for those at the top. Or to be more precise, Kiriarchy does. One of the ways that people express their frustration with the system is by using the hashtag killallmen. I think this choice of words doesn't help anyone. Some feminists agree with me. Some roll their eyes and suggest it's not meant to be taken seriously. But I'm not a fan of using irony to excuse hate-filled statements. And a lot of men do need to fear for their lives under patriarchy. And not all hatred of men will be ironic. I've personally thought that men are a cancer. We are the problem. We're incapable of doing anything but harm and we should be erased. And judging from many men's responses to this question in the survey, again, I am not alone. Now, I think that there is a structural prejudice against men, whatever we choose to call it, but that is not an endorsement of the men who are currently associated with the word misandry. Men's rights activists are using that word a lot, and they don't speak for me. MRAs frame themselves not as men defending men against patriarchy, but as men defending men against feminism. They talk about important causes like more equal attitudes to child custody and advocacy for male victims of domestic violence, but they say that feminism is the problem. I wish that they weren't such a mess, because I believe that men should rise up and demand our rights. But I prefer to see a men's wrongs and men's rights movement. A movement looking to rid ourselves of the unfair advantages and powers that we have, even as we fight for rights in the areas where we are denied them. A movement which doesn't see things as a competition. There's no need to dismiss the reality of violence against women in order to talk about the reality of violence against men. Men are often not given equal rights to their children, but men also abandon their children or provide them with little emotional or material support. MRAs cast those women as cynically trying to trick men into becoming fathers. Those are the men who whine about misandry. MRAs aren't the only group of men pushing back. Terrorising people considered less than men is increasingly organised and terrifying. Some of the responses to the survey reveal this culture. Men who think that patriarchy is a conspiracy theory have wanted me to open my eyes to the reality that we are governed by a female supremacy. I've discovered that the phrase feminazi is more than just hyperbole. Some men see an actual real similarity between how the Nazis treated Jewish people and how feminism treats men. <laughs> now, it might be funny if it wasn't for the fact that at least two mass murders have been based on exactly that kind of rhetoric. 
Violent misogyny is the extreme end of male culture, but these ideas permeate male socialization in many ways. Chivalry and benevolent sexism are a part of it. Street harassment is a part of it, and I am a part of it. Now, the next question is, have you ever experienced gender-related prejudice? Men generally get more respect, and with more respect comes more safety. I don't have to deal with street harassment as a general rule, and when I do, it's men being aggressive towards me and not sexual in nature. When I walk home at night, I might experience discomfort when having to cross a road so that a woman doesn't think that I'm following her, but this is nothing compared to the discomfort that she might feel if she does think that I'm following her. Studies show that in business meetings and other social settings, men talk more and talk over women. The myth is that men don't talk, but we do talk. It's just we don't talk about our feelings. Women are socialised to be social communicators. Men aren't, but we certainly talk. I talk all the time. I'm pretty much scared of silence. Some of this is anxiety. Some of this is personality. Some of this is insecurity. And some of it is privilege. Privilege is like an invisible hat that you wear. You think that the rain just naturally stays off you because you can't see it and you can't feel it. But if you stop and you look for it, then you can start to make out its shape. The last question is what best describes you? Feminism is a really contested word. Some people define it as being about equality, the political struggle for women to be equal. Others define it as being about liberation, the struggle for women to be liberated from the oppressive system of patriarchy. Some argue that those are the same thing. Others say they are very different. Some people object to the femme in feminism, claiming if it was all about being equal, it wouldn't emphasise women. Others say feminism is about and for women because women are structurally disadvantaged. To take out the femme is to erase that reality. There are many feminisms. I call myself a feminist, but I don't care what other people call me. There are many good reasons why feminists might be suspicious of men who call themselves feminists. If you're a man and you do call yourself a feminist, you'll be told that you're only doing it so that women will sleep with you. You'll be told that by men. It's a staple of the men's rights movement. You'll also be told it by women. And if they don't accuse you of doing it for the sex, they'll accuse you of doing it for the cookies, which is a term which means doing it for the praise, which brings me to my bucket speech. I welcome criticisms. I don't want cookies. You can have the cookies. There are some over on the table. I'll give you a cookie if you give me some money. Anything over... Five pounds will get you a cookie. Anything over two pounds will get you a further reading list. Technically, due to the unequal distribution of wealth, women should chip in around 20% less than men. (laughs) Although, of course, not all women. (laughs) Making this show has cost a lot of time, a lot of effort, and quite a lot of money. And if you've got something from it, then please pay what you think the show deserves. And if you haven't got any money, that's fine. Uh, Spreading the word about it is great. Tweeting about it. I'm at Goosefat101 on Twitter, and the hashtag is Mansurvey. And so we get to the end of the show. I don't hate the people who bullied me. I don't hate my mum, and I don't hate my stepdad. I don't hate the women, and I don't hate the men. Although it may take a lifetime to truly stop hating myself, I don't intellectually feel like I should. Social forces, trapped emotions, the weight and power of the system causes these things to happen. We all need to free ourselves and each other. Men, it's our job to reach out to other men and encourage them to try and free themselves from patriarchy, to check our privilege, to shut the fuck up when talking over women, but also to be free to feel and express emotions freely and respectfully, to be safe from violence, to support and love each other, wear summer dresses, feel pretty, express whatever sexuality we have consensually and without shame, find a way to articulate our desire, seek out, listen to and enjoy stories and perspectives that are different from the ones we've let speak for all of us for so long. 
If you feel sad because you were promised things you haven't got, the thing that's making you feel sad is the promise. The thing that keeps you a prisoner is not your fellow inmates, but the bars of the prison. If you feel powerless, it isn't people with less power who cause that feeling. You've been told you're entitled to sex, status, and a lot of other things, but you haven't got those things. Of course you feel bad. You've been tricked, but not by women. You don't need to blame women. You don't even need to blame yourself. You need to blame the false promise. And you need to see that the only way to change the situation is to change your approach to the situation. Women are not a prize. They are not the payoff for the male lead. They're people as complicated and fucked up and flawed as you. Thousands of years of social conditioning is a thing that we all share. We've all been lied to. We've all been manipulated. This manipulation hurts some of us more than others and benefits some of us more than others. It's built on lies and it hurts everyone. Kill the patriarchy with love. Dave Pickering. Thank you. We're going to have a break uh, about 10, 15 minutes, and then we're going to have another show, which is better than mine. So stick around for that one. Follow Stand Up Tragedy on Twitter at Stand Up for Tragedy. Like us or friend us on Facebook. Make friends with a tragedy. Check out our website www.standuptragedy.co.uk. We're fully intending to come back and do more shows in 2017. Maybe go to Edinburgh again. I don't know. That's in the future. But stand-up tragedy is not dead. We're just sleeping. So, for now, the tragedy is over. This podcast has been produced by 
me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and the Reactionaries. Thank you.